Hello and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined today by my co-host, John Allen Gay. This week, we're going deep on the Middle East with a young journalist named Matthew Petty. Matthew Petty is an independent journalist who has spent years studying and analyzing the Middle East. He recently completed a Fulbright in Jordan, and he's worked at organizations like the National Interest and the Quincy Institute, while writing for publications like The Intercept and Reason Magazine. Matthew Petty is a rising star, critically analyzing American policy in this region, and we also speak about some of his recent essays on questions about U.S. foreign policy from a left-wing perspective. Join us in our conversation with Matthew Petty. Welcome to Security Dilemma. We're recording this on September 19th. Uh, just this morning here in Washington, uh, it word emerged that the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, or really specifically between the breakaway Nagorno-Karabakh region, region and Azerbaijan, uh, has resumed. Baku announced a military operation against uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region. What brought things to this point and how should folks be thinking about this conflict? So the Nagorno-Karabakh war is the kind of thing that happens when empires fall apart. Uh, I mean, Armenia and Azerbaijan are legally on paper the successor states to the Soviet Union. And so theoretically, the Armenian enclave of Karabakh is, is within the borders of Azerbaijan. But what happened, uh, you know, the Karabakh Armenians have never actually been under Azeri rule. They actually, actually, this is a little known, but they declared independence from the Soviet Union a few weeks before Azerbaijan itself did. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of those things where you had a multi-ethnic empire that's now drawing nation-state borders, and the borders don't line up exactly. They're not. You can't draw viable borders. Uh, without putting some people on the, quote, wrong side of it. Uh, so in that way, it's a very violent and sad conflict, but it's not a unique one in either the former Soviet world or a lot of other post-colonial uh, regions. Geopolitically, I think what's interesting is that the West has a very strong kind of public ideological sympathy for Armenians. Um, I think, you know, most Americans, if they've heard of this conflict, have heard it from the Armenian side and the Armenian diaspora. And I mean, I'm not going to hide my sympathies. I think the Armenians are facing another round of ethnic cleansing if, Azar- if Azerbaijan wins. Uh, but in terms of what the West wants to do, and I don't want to say interests, we'll get into why later on, but in terms of what the West wants to do, Azerbaijan is so much more useful. It's a not... The thing that gets talked about a lot is the gas supplies, but what it's really about is access to Central Asia um, and blocking Russia and Iran's connection with each other. So you have this, uh, you know, the, the U.S. sends military aid to Azerbaijan, not a lot, but it does send aid. Um, more importantly is the kind of diplomatic pressure Uh yeah, the U.S. Is, is kind of makes noises sometimes about uh, about if Azerbaijan does something too ugly, but the U.S. and Europe are have generally uh, kind of both sides the conflict and tried to 
put a lot of the burden on Armenia for making peace. And I mean, the lead up to this is this is a very it's shocking to see the 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 violence unfold, but it's not surprising. It's not didn't come out of nowhere. The after the 2020 war, um, well, actually, let me rewind. Uh, basically, after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the civil war in Azerbaijan, uh, the Armenians of Karabakh had an autonomous province, and they had also managed to take some of the surrounding areas of Azerbaijan and expelled a large number of Azeris from there, which has been a wound that Azerbaijan um, nursed for 30 years. And then in 2020, Azerbaijan took back the surrounding regions of Karabakh, but also some parts of Karabakh proper. And at this point, Russia sent peacekeepers in, and there was this slow negotiation process under which the way Armenia saw it, I think it, it was supposed to be a ceasefire and a Russian protection for Karabakh. The way Azerbaijan saw it was um, basically negotiating the terms of Karabakh's surrender and possibly some of Armenia proper. And what happened over the past few months is that Azerbaijan blockaded the entrances to Karabakh, uh, put it under basically a starvation blockade unless the Karabakhsis would accept Azerbaijani rule. And um, they haven't, so this now begins the the kind of follow-up to the threat in which uh, this area that's been under starvation is now being bombed by Azerbaijan. It's very ugly work, and Azerbaijan's reaction to Armenia's rejection is ironically proving why Armenia would reject Azerbaijan's terms, because being back under Azerbaijani rule means being not accepting Azerbaijani citizenship and integrating into this multi-ethnic country, but accepting the in a hostile army. Yeah, there's also a lot of international layers to this. I mean, there's the Europeans who want to get gas from places other than Russia. Uh, there's the United States, which has a large Armenian diaspora, but has often been aligning, tilting toward uh, toward Azerbaijan. The Israelis and Turks have been aligned with Azerbaijan and have both provided a lot of weapons. Uh, but I've, I've been particularly interested to see the Iran angle in this, uh, foreign minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian met with the uh, Armenian foreign minister in New York today. Uh, Russian defense minister Sergei Shoigu is in Tehran today. You know, Iran and Azerbaijan have really had tensions going up and up uh, a lot since the 2020 conflict. And Russia, in turn, has kind of been losing influence in its nominal ally, Armenia. So how do you think Iran and Russia are thinking about the outbreak of conflict here? I mean, the, the Iranians in particular had ha have had some statements that looked like military threats in the run-up to this. I mean, yeah, as I've said, one of the West's big interests, and I think this is more for the American side than the European side, you know, we can't use the West. I don't like when people just say the West, uh, so I shouldn't do that myself. But the American and the U.S., what the U.S. has wanted from Azerbaijan uh, is access, is to cut off, kind of cut off Iran from Russia and circle both, and also to gain access to the Caspian Sea and Central Asia. Uh, and I think the reason why I say what the U.S. wants to do and not a U.S. interest is because, and we can talk about this later on, I think the uh, 
U.S. conflict with Iran is really ideologically driven to the point where, you know, the U.S. is willing to underwrite whatever Azerbaijan does for some small marginal advantage against Iran. Uh, and of course, Iran wants the exact opposite outcome. They don't want to be uh, they don't want to be encircled by this pro-U.S. country. They don't want Armenia's access to Iran to be they don't want the Iranian-Armenian border to be cut off. That was one of the big things in the 2020 peace negotiations was there was talk of a corridor that runs through because Azerbaijan has a major exclave that's separated from the rest of Azerbaijan by Armenian territory. There was talk of a, a corridor that will run through it. But the way the Armenians saw it was something like a customs union or a, um, easy land transport. The way Azerbaijanis saw it, I think, was real territorial control. Uh, which would, of course, cut Armenia off from Iran. Iran doesn't want to have a single Azerbaijani land border that then connects with Turkey, which is a NATO state. And I don't, I don't think Russia wants that either. But the amount, I think what's new is the amount to which Iran has been actually willing to step up for Armenia. In the past, Iran has been willing to, in the same way that the U.S. kind of quietly helps Azerbaijan. Iran has been willing to quietly help Armenia uh, and to let Russia take big responsibility. I think now that Russia is distracted with this <laughs> self-inflicted wound in Ukraine, right now Iran now has to take a more active role in, in defending its interests in, in Armenia. And uh, I don't know whether they'll... I mean, as far as Russia and Iran are concerned... Karabakh is part of Armenia proper. I mean, it's part of Azerbaijan proper. It's not Armenia. I think of Azerbaijan, you'd see a much more active role by both of these countries if Azerbaijan started pushing into Armenian proper. But the thing is, from the Azerbaijani side, it doesn't really seem like they distinguish. I mean, in international fora, they'll talk about Karabakh and how they want, you know, the the Azerbaijanis of Armenian origin to return. But in practice, as soon as they won the 2020 war, they started pushing at the Armenian border because, uh, and, you know, Aliyev, the leader of Azerbaijan, has made statements about how he thinks even Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, has some historical Azerbaijani claim. Because, you know, even though these are two sovereign states that broke off from the Soviet Union, it's really two peoples that have lived alongside each other for a very long time and have a lot of unresolved claims that aren't just bounded by the, you know, post-1991 borders that were set by Stalin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these, uh, the intermingling of peoples in the area is, is part of the backstory of the conflict. You know, there were massacres in, uh, inside Azerbaijan, like out in the suburbs of Baku during the the war in the 90s, uh, because there were people, both peoples were living in the suburbs of, uh, of Baku in the 90s. Um, so you mentioned Iran uh, as, as kind of a ideological uh, conflict for the United States. What do you mean by that? I think the US uh, is suffering from Iran-Israel derangement syndrome. I think US opinion makers and policymakers see beyond what the kind of immediate material benefit is for the United States. And certainly there are a lot of people making a lot of money from the U.S. presence there. Uh, U.S. policymakers and opinion makers see the Middle East 
and have seen it for the past few decades as a morality play in which Israel is the kind of ultimate good and Iran is the ultimate evil. Uh, I think the lack of material interest is actually why they're able to do this, because it's not Russia, it's not China, you're not running the risk of nuclear war. I mean, you'd mess up energy markets, but you're not really, this is not the center of the world economy. So they can really act in a more purely ideological way. And the ideology is not what U.S. leaders say it is. It's kind of ideology pretending to be realism, pretending to be ideology. So on the surface, you'll hear a lot of talk about human rights and spreading democracy. And, you know, we need to spread uh, Muslim Jewish tolerance and fight radicalism and spread democracy. I think the religious tolerance is kind of taken over because nobody takes the democracy part seriously. Then, of course, once these officials are out of office, they'll kind of grudgingly admit like, oh, no, I mean, I've had to make this terrible moral sacrifice and accept that we need to ally with the Gulf states because of U.S. interests. But then when you ask what are those U.S. interests, it gets back into spaghetti logic uh, because, you know, Saudi Arabia is not that important for global energy markets in that way. And the real geopolitical interest becomes like, well, we need Saudi Arabia to fight off Iran. Why do we need Saudi Arabia to fight off Iran? We need it to fight well because Iran threatens our allies like Saudi Arabia. Um, what's really going on is this anger at uh, this, this unresolved anger at uh, the 1979 revolution, because the U.S. lost a very big client state in a very humiliating way, and Iran has continued to needle the U.S. in in some petty ways. And I think Washington really, really does not like to have its pride wounded. And then there's the Israel angle, where I think Americans see Israel as the kind of ultimate Western redemption story. Um, and this is we can talk about the role of World War II and the Holocaust in the American self-image. Uh, but yes, the, they, the U.S. sees Israel as the ultimate redemption story, and it sees the ultimate moral test of the Middle East as like Muslim-Jewish animosity. And so when it sees Iran being the big bad and the big geopolitical rival to Israel, it therefore identifies if Israel is the angel, then Iran is the devil. And so it's led to, I mean, like... It's led to the U.S. making these big strategic commitments that have circular logic and only really make sense if you realize they see this as a good in itself. They see bolstering Israel's regional position as a good in itself, and they see weakening the Islamic Republic of Iran as a good in itself. I'd love to zoom out on that point a little bit because I, I this was something that, you know, as as someone on the left in the restraint world, uh, I, I couldn't put a finger on, but your your Substack essay back in March on this nailed it. Um, you, you talk about sort of rationality and realism and the emotion that, uh, or the emotion or, you know, non-realist, more political pragmatism that played a role in Henry Kissinger's legacy compared to George F. Kennan uh, or or Hans Morgenthau's. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the premise of that, you know, like, 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 like what did you see in Kissinger that made him less of a realist than people often, than, than I think a lot of people on the left like to accept. Well, the way Kissinger, when he's actually been in positions of power and influence has acted, has not been in a realist, uh, cold calculating way. It's been a careerist. I mean, Kissinger is a cold pragmatist and realist, but not in terms of 
interests of states against each other. He's a pragmatist and a cold careerist in terms of his own personal interests. He's very good at playing bureaucracies and telling powerful people what they want to hear and making it sound academic uh, in a way that's bolstered his own influence. But if you look at the actual policy recommendations, I mean, he dragged out the war in Vietnam, and the which he knew was unwinnable for basically pride. It, it was all this talk about credibility, which, you know, credibility makes it sound like a material interest, but it's not. It's, I don't want to look like a chicken. I don't want to, it's a sunk cost kind of thing. And then on the eve of the Iraq war, he, you know, went along with the consensus and supported the war, which ended up, well, we can talk about whose interests the Iraq war served, but it, it certainly was not in the in the realist view, in the view that we're looking at the United States as this um, kind of monolithic block that has permanent interests and needs to have an economy of, needs to be uh, thrifty about how it spends its force. That's That wasn't the Iraq war, and that hasn't been really Kissinger's suggestions in practice. He has been he has been a little bit more willing to to um to make kind of these pragmatic deals but not when they run against with other countries like you know talking to the Soviet Union or China but not when it runs contrary to what Washington wants to hear then he follows the herd in ways that are not really uh realist and you look at actual realist scholars like people who who are not in, who study this stuff from the outside and are not in positions of government, but are thinking in the the kind of classical realist way, you know, thrifty use of force to preserve permanent national interests. They weren't in favor of drawing out the Vietnam War, and they weren't in favor of drawing out the. They weren't in favor of invading Iraq, and weren't. I'm not even talking about, uh, you know, them being doves. A lot of these people were not doves. Like I don't think. You know, Morgenthau or Keenan were really doves. They were willing to threaten and exercise a lot of violence against the against what they saw as genuine U.S. enemies. But they were they had a, a logic and an economy to how they used force, which Kissinger didn't have. He said whatever made him sound smarter. JQAS just uh, has been doing a reading group in the this week about the the foreign policy legacy of George F. Kennan, uh, and you know a part of that is that he actually uh, uh, lost politically. You know he didn't play the political game the way that Kissinger did, and so he found his way out pretty prematurely. Um, but uh, I, I I do want to you know sort of bring that to the modern day. You know Henry Kissinger is I mean I guess sitting in rooms but not so much making decisions as he was before. Uh, what do you interpret from from institutional foreign policy voices today, like you know what St- uh, Dr. Stephen Walt calls the blob, um, as this sort of masking uh, that, that that you describe? Like, like like where are people claiming to be realist when they might be more pragmatic today? In your view. Well, it's like with the Iran thing. Um, I think that given the way U.S. politics work, not just the emotional attachment that these leaders personally have, but also the kind of way that these things play out politically, uh, it it benefits them to to basically be the biggest Iran hawk in the room, or if they're a dove, to phrase it in very hawkish ways. I mean, I don't know if you saw Brett McGurk's interview with uh with Jason Rezaian about the recent prisoner exchange with Iran. I mean, that kind of thing 
is exactly what the U.S. government should be doing. It's it's it didn't pay a single dollar and it used its leverage to protect American citizens. And yet the Biden administration has found itself in the position. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, just like the most vital interest of a state is protecting its citizens. And that's also the kind of thing that you'd think the Biden administration would want to show off. But instead, um, as Daniel Larison put it, they've kind of said, you know, look what diplomacy can achieve. We will never do that. Uh, you know, Brett McGurk gave an interview to Jason Rezaian where he said, like, yeah, this is an accomplished diplomacy. Also, it doesn't open the door to further diplomacy with Iran. And that's because, right, when we deal with Iran, on the surface, you get this moralistic thing of, like, we need to support the Iranian people's struggle to freedom. And then when you actually get, you know, an official off the record in a room with you or a former official to talk about what's going on with Iran, they'll say, well, the Islamic Republic is you know, a threat to U.S. interests in the Middle East. It's a threat to U.S. dominance. And so, yeah, we it's not really about democracy. We'll work with Saudi Arabia. We'll work with Turkey. We'll abet the, uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestinians. But it's, it's, you know, we need to do this to contain Iran. But then you scratch, like, why do we need to contain Iran? It's basically just becomes because they're evil, right? Because if we're really bastards and we're really about you know relentlessly pursuing u.s relentlessly you know shoring up u.s national wealth and power it would have made perfect sense to say all right iran are bastards so is saudi arabia we can balance the two uh and and basically deal with them both on pragmatic terms instead you have the opposite where we've locked ourselves into this alliance with saudi arabia and israel to the point where the Saudis and the Israelis feel comfortable going to China and dealing with them on the side. And China is a much bigger material interest for the U.S. than the Middle East. Uh, but the reaction to that is not like, oh, we need to pressure these states by widening our options and talking to Iran and talking to Russia. The reaction to this is, well, we need to give the Saudis and Israelis more and fight Iran harder. Um, so I think that's one area. Uh I think when it comes to, I think the, when you leave the Middle East, I think they're a lot more rational, but even like, let's say with Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, on the surface, it's about protecting Ukrainian democracy. And then you scratch one level and it's like, no, we need to weaken Russia. Uh, we need to weaken Russia by supporting Ukraine. But then you scratch underneath that and it becomes ideological again. Like, Why? why don't we play Ukraine and Russia? Why don't we talk to both Ukraine and Russia? Why don't we try to maintain Russia, turn Russia against China? Well, because they're evil. And the thing at the bottom of it is not, it's not the ideology of democracy exactly. It's not actually existing democracy. It's about um, countries being willing to accept U.S. primacy to soothe the pride of American leaders and to allow us to feel like we're the good guys in a cosmic struggle. And in practice, a lot, the uh, the actually existing human rights, I mean, it was the same thing in Vietnam, right? Uh, we were willing in order to protect kind of big D democracy in Vietnam to trample all, right? Like, 
the the people forget that the justification for the Vietnam War was not just domino theory and countering the Soviet Union. It was very much like we are defending South Vietnam from communist dictatorship. The communists are the ultimate force of evil and we cannot let them have another inch. Then you put someone in a room and you try to make them explain it and then they'll say, well, it's dominoes. If we let Vietnam fall, the Soviet Union will have greater influence. And then, but that turned out to not be true or not be true in the way that the worst people predicted. And we ended up spending, the U.S. ended up spending a lot more blood and treasure on that war um, than it lost by leaving. And then, you know, I mean, it was really telling in the the post-war talks about negotiation with, uh, about normalization with Vietnam, when Vietnam, when the Vietnamese Communist Party had said, you know, we're willing to bury the past and have a working relationship with the U.S., which they do now. Um, a lot of the domestic political debate in the U.S. was just like wounded pride. It was wounded pride, and you know we can't let uh, we can't let you know the sacrifices be in vain. We can't talk to the enemy, etc. Which is ideological and emotional. It's not realist. And of course, every country has nationalist causes and emotion and pride. Every political leader has that. But what the U.S. is, you, I think the past 40 years of U.S. foreign policy or 50 years of U.S. foreign policy has been unique about is it's very good at kind of burying that stuff and sublimating it. But that doesn't make the emotional, it doesn't make it more hinged or more rational. Instead, it, it actually does the opposite and it allows irrationality to be disguised in um, other ways. There's an essay by Tanner Greer that talked about the war on terror and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, like he said, basically the U S could have defined uh, revenge as an actual war aim. And that would have allowed us to have a, uh, you know, an honest adult discussion about who was an acceptable target for revenge in nine 11, who actually could be held accountable, you know, who had to pay. And because we didn't have that conversation, we hid revenge under these weird, spaghetti-ish theories of deterrence and and uh that like spreading democracy will deter our enemies will bring peace then you know what ended up happening is this like this 9-11 the the trauma of 9-11 just turned into like unrestrained malice against whatever muslim populations that we had an excuse to bomb and uh yeah so it's it's the the kind of veneer of rationality actually led to more irrational policies. You mentioned a moment ago, uh, Brett McGurk's interview with Washington Post columnist Jason Rezaian, and he himself, uh, about these hostage exchanges, he himself was exchanged in a previous round of hostages. He had been held in prison in Iran. And critics of this most recent deal and of the previous deal have said, we're just feeding a cycle of Iran taking hostages, us paying or allowing money to flow in a kind of de facto ransom, and that this cycle is just going to go on and on. I mean, even Sia McNamazi, one of the hostages released the other day, kind of alluded to that in the statement uh, that, that he released uh, through his lawyer. 
I, I'm curious what your reaction is to these kinds of uh, points. I mean, Iran doing hostage uh, hostage taking is probably one of the most unhinged uh, unhinged things that that state does. There's a lot of cases where I think Iran is uh, basically in the same neighborhood of of immorality as the other Middle Eastern powers. Uh, but I think the hostage taking is definitely a more both immorality and also causing instability. I think the hostage taking is definitely one of the more uh, unique unique factors of the Iranian system. I don't know if there's a good easy answer to that because you know the U.S. government, as I said, has the, the basic responsibility is to protect its citizens. It can't just it can't just uh, it, it can't just like leave them to die. And if it has leverage, that the thing it should be using the leverage over rather than these like you know, quixotical quests to shore up Israel and Saudi Arabia's power should be protecting Americans. Um, you're right, though, that there is a legitimate criticism that, you know, ransom encourages hostage taking. I think the last few hostage deals have been less likely to do that, because if we look at like the Trump, the Trump administration deal was a uh, was a straight up prisoner exchange. And I think there are definitely some moral questions about the prisoners that the U.S. had taken because they were, you know, Iranians in the U.S. who hadn't really committed any crime and were being railroaded for um, very technical sanctions violations. I think like one of them had taken samples for a cancer lab. Uh, the other one straight up, there was no case against him, but the immigration authorities then took his visa and just held him. Uh but in that case, I think Iran, like there was no ransom. It was just a, it was just a straight exchange of prisoners. This too, I mean, was a straight exchange of prisoners. Iran didn't get any money that wasn't Iran's money. It was money that was frozen in South Korean banks, and it wasn't released directly to Iran. It was put in escrow, basically, in Qatar so that Iran can spend it on food and medicine, which is something that was theoretically supposed to be allowed under the sanctions anyways, you know? Uh, the line from the, you know, Soviet-style dogma out of Washington for the very longest time has been that sanctions don't hurt civilians and food and medicine transactions are allowed. And now suddenly, wait, <laughs> they need a deal to do that? But yeah, so I think there's a lot more grounds to criticize the Obama administration's deal, which actually did involve a cash exchange for hostages. I think Biden and Trump's diplomacy have both, although there are things you can criticize about it, although the things that the U.S., you know, use as bargaining chips were maybe not the most moral. Uh, it, it's far less likely to encourage uh, encourage more hostage taking because this is not like rewarding Iran in any way. Yeah, and I, I think it's it, these cycles uh, are very interesting because uh, I, I think the way we see the press cover it is often very zoomed in on the particular circumstances of, you know, say an Iranian attack on shipping or a seizure of a, of a ship. And it often buries how this is actually a cycle of, of violence and of seizures, you know, that we have also been seizing their ships. And, you know, look, you can, you can dispute uh, the merits of, you know, our type of seizures versus their type of seizures. Uh, but, 
you can't understand the phenomenon if you don't recognize that there is some kind of uh, call and response dynamic happening there. Uh, but I wanted to pivot over to Syria. Uh, there's been a lot of unrest in Syria recently, uh, both in some of the U.S. backed areas and in some of the government areas. I, I guess a big question that comes forward is like, hey, the United States has been in Syria for many years now, doesn't seem to have an exit strategy. It certainly seems like a lot of elements within our government uh, are not interested in any kind of exit and an exit would be super complicated. Do you think we can ever get out of our position in eastern Syria? Well, U.S. policy in Syria is not designed to have an end. I mean, James Jeffrey, the uh, the Trump administration's guy for Syria, gave an interview. I think he gave multiple interviews, but on the same line. But the one I'm thinking of is an El Monitor where he said, you know, he actually compared it to the thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode, the Karabakh War. He said, you know, we live in a world of frozen conflicts. Like, we have managed to freeze the conflict in Syria Uh in a way that benefits, uh, we've managed to freeze the conflict in Syria in a way that hurts our enemies and benefits us. And I think that has been the design of U.S. policy. When we talk about U.S. policy in Syria, I mean, it's it's multiple ones that have kind of converged. Um, the first track was support for the Syrian opposition against Assad, against the Assad government. And there, I mean, it's the common misconception is like, oh, it was a regime change program. Uh, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Basically, once the Syrian uprisings had turned to a civil war, then the Obama administration, through the CIA, tried to get its hands on all of the, the faucets of weapons going in. The CIA partners with Turkey, with Jordan, with Saudi Arabia, with Qatar, and basically, I mean, it provides its own weapons, but it does so so that it has leverage over who's getting the weapons and how much is flowing. And, you know, by the middle of the war, the U.S. policy was not even to have a rebel victory. It was to, they didn't want an uncontrolled rebel victory. They wanted basically the war to end with, they wanted to force the Assad government to the table and have the U.S. sitting on the other side because the U.S. is the uh, patron of the opposition. Uh, and that kind of fell apart around the same time that uh, a different U.S. partnership started, which is. Um, Basically, once the war metastasized, once the kind of violence in eastern Syria and western Iraq metastasized into ISIS and this just horrible thing that we want to contain, once it metastasized into this horrible violence that we wanted to contain, um, nobody was really putting up a fight or an effective fight except for the small Syrian Kurdish leftist party uh, known as the YPG. And so then the U.S. military, which is looking for solutions, partners with the YPG, starts arming it. Turkey is kind of upset by this because it sees this Kurdish leftist as an internal threat. And I mean, a lot of the YPG's leadership was veterans of the guerrilla war against the Turkish state. Uh, and so then the U.S. basically pivots and, and takes the YPG and pushes it into an alliance with uh, Syrian Arab opposition and other groups called the Syrian Democratic Forces and backs it against ISIS, but also creates this kind of blocking force against Russia, Iran, and the Assad government. 
And U.S. policy has always been a little bit uncomfortable with the Kurdish leftist element and has always tried to dilute it. Um, and it's and so it's it's this weird policy of weakening this revolutionary force while also bolstering it, bolstering it against against Iran and Russia and Assad, but also weakening it against Turkey. And I think the kind of uh, <laughs> the kind of crown jewel of this policy was the October 2019 invasion, where the U.S. basically told the Syrian Democratic Forces to dismantle their fortifications along the border quietly. In the background, they're talking about basically spinning off, creating like a Syrian opposition spinoff from the from the Syrian Democratic Forces that they can run a parallel program through. And then Turkey goes and invades the areas where the fortifications have been torn down. But it didn't exactly go along plan because Congress basically said, and the media basically said, Trump is betraying the Kurds. It was terrible press. Also, the Syrian Democratic Forces held together much more cohesively than they thought. And then Russia got involved. And I think it, it froze the conflict there. But Turkey has continued to needle the Syrian Democratic Forces and tried to destabilize the region. They've messed with the oil. They've uh, Not the oil. They've messed with the water supply, the electricity supply. They've just been drone striking random, not just military commanders, but leaders and officials in the civilian government. Um, and also blockading the, encouraging Iraqi Kurdistan to blockade the land borders. So the sum total of all this is, is causing these little explosions like the tribal rebellion in Deir Ezzor, uh, where several, uh, Arab clans rose up against the Syrian democratic forces and got crushed. Um, and anyways, the U S doesn't really care about the details as long as it doesn't really care about instability, you know, and, and this Turkish-Kurdish thing, as long as whatever's filling the vacuum is not Iran, Russia, or ISIS. Um, and, you know, some of the instability is caused directly by the U.S. itself, because the U.S. sanctions in Syria are working. It's preventing any kind of uh, reconstruction, not just in government-held areas, basically across the whole country. Uh, I don't think they care about that outcome. I think they're very happy to basically just keep the Syrian conflict frozen you know, as James Jeffrey said, keep it frozen in ways that that block Russia and Iran. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's the sum total of U.S. policy. And so, if U.S. troops were to pull out at this moment, Turkey probably would invade, and it it would cause more chaos and in unpredictable ways that the U.S. doesn't want. But there's also ways to broker an agreement between the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Kurds with the Assad government. There are ways to work towards kind of a final peace. It would ex require some political compromises the U.S. doesn't want, but I think more importantly, the U.S. doesn't want to unfreeze the conflict in any way, whether that's to escalate or de-escalate the violence. Yeah, you know, and there's parts of our presence in Syria that have, like at Tanf, that have nothing to do with with any of this, you know, that are basically just trying to sit and block a road between Iran and Lebanon. Um, you know, and there's also a lot of layers of, go ahead. The Tanf president is also, yes, that has nothing to do with the Syrian democratic forces. That was just a minor, um, basically U.S. special forces outpost that was created early in the war against ISIS and then became a standalone thing. Uh, and there, I mean, like this is, you talked about the cycle of retaliation, like 
you know, we get all this news coverage of Iran hitting Tanf with drones every so often, but Iran hits Tanf with drones because the U.S. forces are allowing Israeli airstrikes. And there's been coverage of this, not a lot of coverage, but there was, um, the, it, it is a publicly known thing. The Israelis use the air corridors over Tanf to hit, uh, to hit Iranian forces because the Iranians can't tell if it's an American plane or an Israeli plane coming over. They also, Al Monitor reported a few years ago that Israeli intelligence actually, there was Israeli signals intelligence stuff based in Tanf. Like, this is a base that is directly killing Iranian troops. So Iran hits it back with drones. Like, you know, it's it's part of this tit for tat, but we only hear at the other end of it. And so it sounds like to the American public and a lot of Congress that, uh, oh, you know, Iran's just doing this for no reason just because they hate America. Uh, and, you know, going back into the Israel thing, I mean, the fact that American troops are a tripwire there for Israeli airstrikes, I think is something that requires should should take a little of interrogation like if the israelis have an interest in hitting the iranian forces why is it that the u.s has to absorb the risk why is it that you know and i think it's you know some of it is all right bureaucratic inertia like it's there and uh and we're just not going to stop the israelis from using it but i think if we're really concerned with avoiding a conflict with iran you know, then we can tell the Israelis don't do that. But I, I don't think they mind. I don't think they mind being embroiled in the middle of this Iran-Israel conflict. By they, I mean the political leadership, the U.S., not the U.S. military. Yeah, just to add on to some of these layers of complexity, you know, we have, going back to the SDF area, we've tended to oppose efforts to reconcile between the Kurds and the central government and that reconciliation would be really hard, but we've tried to make it not happen. Uh, you know, we've tried to not have any conversation with the Assad government, uh, you know, which uh, understandable because they're so nasty, but still like if you want to find a way out of this conflict, other than permanent frozen conflict that we're in, you know, the middle of the desert uh, on the Iraq, Syria, Jordan border forever, uh, it makes it pretty hard. And even then, the Kurds and the Syrian government, despite this kind of ideological layer we put on this, are actually more comfortable with each other than folks realize. I mean, the Syrian government still has a presence inside uh, places like Hasaka. So it's it's uh, the attempts to put layers of morality on top of this conflict often are serious oversimplifications of the dynamics on the ground. We could talk about this forever, but I know Patrick wanted to pivot over to Egypt for a bit. Uh, may I just add? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I won't, I won't do a rant. I'll just quickly. Um, the U.S. actually does have a policy of having the opposition talk to Assad. Uh, it, it supports U.N. resolution. Uh, I forgot the number, but it, it supports the, the U.N. peace process in Geneva. It's just that in that peace process, who's rep representing the opposition are people who have no power on the ground. You know, it could, it's not that, it's not, if the U.S. wants to, you know, support a Kurdish uh, SDF, it's not really Kurds because there's other opposition forces involved, but if the U.S. wants to encourage SDF reconciliation with the government and a peace process, it wouldn't even really require changing the stated goals because the stated goals are to support 
peace negotiations. It's just that the U.S. prefers not to touch it, prefers to have these, you know, non these basically uh, fake these Potemkin negotiations happen in Geneva with people who don't represent anyone on the ground, while the people who represent forces on the ground don't talk to the government. To sort of pivot just a little bit away from the uh, you know the complexity of Syria to another um, uh, frustratingly complex uh, area, the Biden administration just announced the transfer of Egyptian military uh, foreign military financing toward Ukraine. I think often largely citing some relationship between uh, Egypt uh, and uh, and Russia. Um, do you consider this any sort of meaningful departure from the Camp David Accords? And do you think the financial structures of the nineteen seventy nine Camp David Accords? Are important to the region's stability. The feeling I get, I'm not, I'm not an Egypt expert, but the feeling I get is kind of that the, the Camp David Accords uh, side of the USAID has uh, has the the aid side of the Camp David's Accord is less relevant because Egypt doesn't need to be bribed to be at peace with Israel anymore. Uh, it doesn't have any outstanding territorial. Uh, territorial grievances it doesn't want gaza back uh and it it because of the kind of abraham accords uh order which you know predates the abraham accords because of the israeli gulf alliance and egypt is within the orbit of the gulf states i think that by itself is a good enough reason for egypt to uh to you know keep the peace and keep the suez open and which is really what the camp david accords was about right it was about reopening the suez canal this is before the U.S. had its Israel derangement syndrome fully. Uh, it had a very specific material interest there. Um, I think that Egypt, yeah, and I think that taking the aid away because of Egypt with Russia, I mean, Egypt was very blatantly playing both sides here and was uh, stepping up its military cooperation with Russia. And I think the U.S. felt like it kind of, especially after it got leaked in the Discord leaks, which is the funniest, funniest geopolitical crisis ever uh after that thing got leaked in the discord leaks and it was publicly known i think the Biden administration felt like well it, it couldn't just handle this quietly it had to do something and i think cutting this military aid that at this point was superfluous and this point drew a lot more attention to the u.s egypt relationship uh than the u.s necessarily wanted yeah it was just a very easy very easy thing to cut to send a message. So as we sort of uh, wrap up a little bit, uh, you're a relatively recent college grad who's had a ton of success writing in some really cool places, working with some really cool people and doing programs like Fulbright. For any students who want to do similar work to what you do, do you have any, do you have any sort of advice? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, look, I think uh, part of the reason I can write as freely as I can, and uh, part of the reason I can say things that no one else is saying to the extent that I am original is because I don't want to work in the government. Uh, so it is a, it is a kind of pure journalist career path. I don't really, I'm not keeping my powder dry to get a security clearance or something. Um, so if that is a career path, I mean, be aware that there are trade-offs, right? If you want to get a security clearance then and, and a government job and that kind of thing, then you probably will write a lot of unoriginal dry stuff just to prove that you know something. Uh, if you don't, if you want to be an original um, loud thinker and make a splash, it doesn't mean you won't have any political influence or any chance at a role, but that role probably won't be 
directly in government. Uh, in terms of how to become a journalist, I mean, it's just practice, practice, practice. You don't, the great thing about this field and what I love about it is like, you're not really judged on credentials. Obviously, going to a prestigious university gives you personal connections, but it really is about like what you publish, what you put out there. And a lot of that's just practice, like talk to people. The other thing I like to say is um, the challenge of journalism is not being a good writer because a lot of people are, are good at copy. The challenge of journalism is talking to the right people and learning things from them. And that's why I love it, because this is just a job that, that, yes, it's about meeting interesting people and learning interesting things, but that's the other thing. Like, you can't be a journalist if you're afraid to pick up the phone and you're afraid to just cold call an important person. A lot of great opportunities and a lot of uh, great insights have been from just basically seeing that someone has something interesting and knows something interesting or has an interesting experience, just very aggressively bugging them to share. And, uh, you know, I guess the last piece of advice is you don't, the other temptation is when you're a young journalist is to write everything you learn and just repeat all the conversations. But like 90% of the conversations I do have are stuff that just stays, you know, in my head, helps guide my writing. But that's a case where I think I, I, when I was younger, I wasn't as good as keeping my powder dry, but, um, uh, I think, yeah, like when you see a good journalist and I'm not saying myself, uh, <laughs> but a lot of, I've learned from also watching other good journalists in action, uh, that, you know, a lot of their conversations just stay off the record and stay off and aren't said, but then it shines through in their writing and you see the insights that they've learned from people. Once you sit on these conversations, these like off the record roundtables or whatever, and then you see what these journalists write, you can see how um, even if you can't quote it, you don't want to use it, it still makes your writing better to just talk to a lot of people and a variety of people, you know, not just people you agree with and not just people who are powerful. Matthew Petty, thank you for coming on Security Dilemma. Thank you so much for having me. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review in your podcast app. Join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.